Hello, friends, and uh, welcome to yet another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. This is episode five, and today we have a very special guest. One special guest and one not so special guest. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm the slightly less special guest? <laughs> yes, you guessed uh, right. <laughs> so we're here in Miracle Mile, Miami, Florida, and we are at Dr. Charles Mall office and we're here to talk about regenerative medicine stem cells prp prolotherapy and all of that good stuff dr mal is a physician surgeon and he specializes in the field of regenerative medicine and we are grateful that he took some of his busy time to talk to us today so that we can hopefully bring some clarity to uh, the field of regenerative medicine and allow uh, the listeners to understand what it's used for, what it's not used for, and what the research says. Hello, Dr. Mal. Hi. Pleasure to be here. Thank, Thank you, you so much for coming or for allowing us to come. <laughs> and with me, we also have Dr. Bill Kelly. So I'm the less special guest. I'm Steffi's is hero or idol a better term? Oh <laughs> Steph's friend and former clinical instructor back in her days as a student, and I I've taught done a him lot more. With fair enough, I'm uh, pretty familiar with regenerative medicine from a couple of years spent working side by side with Dr. Mall and lecturing on the topic of regenerative rehab and how regenerative medicine and prolo and stem cell and all of those good things transitions into the rehab world and those two things work together in order to speed up healing. Mm -hmm. Bill has a practice in, where is it? In Fort Lauderdale? Fort Lauderdale. Yep, Central Fort Lauderdale. Called Aries. Aries Physical Therapy. Yeah. Check it out if you're in the area. Awesome. So Dr. Mal, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your education and your interest in regenerative medicine and kind of your story of how you got to where you are now? Sure. Um, I have always suffered from back pain. Uh, even as a kid, and in spite of that, played baseball. That was my sport. And uh, my back was always the limiting factor on how far I could go in sports. And uh, when I became a physician, what interested me was orthopedics or ophthalmology, which is eye surgery. And I decided on becoming a retinal specialist, which is the inner layer of the eye, this is going back maybe before you all were born. I've been a doctor for about 40 years now uh, because retinal surgery was a brand new field uh, in medicine. Before that, the success rate of uh, putting a retinal detachment back together was less than 10%. In today's world, it's now 99%. Huh. So it was very attractive to me to do that. Um, I did that for 20, 25 years, but still suffered from backaches. And I ended up having over time three back surgeries. Every time I woke up, my back pain was the same or worse as what it was before, in spite of having physicians who were my best friends who were orthopedic surgeons or neurosurgeons or whatever. Uh, just the routine conventional uh, medicine at that time just failed to, uh, to give me any kind of satisfaction or benefit. And after 20 some odd years at sitting and standing doing retinal surgery, I could no longer do it and basically was forced to retire. Um, that said, uh, I was out of medicine for approximately a 10 year period and then uh, decided to go back into it uh, because I was now living in Miami, Florida. 
and I had remarried and decided it was time to, to do something else. Uh, I spent a couple of years learning about anti-aging medicine, uh, did three fellowships in anti-aging medicine, and thought I was going to do uh, some form of anti-aging medicine because living in Miami, where we have the beaches and the sun, we all want to be eternally youthful. Unfortunately, my back went out on me one more time, and that changed my direction and course. And I was offered the same thing I was offered in the past, which was uh, now having a surgical fusion operation on my back. In addition, they wanted to operate on both of my hips. That was about 15 years ago. So I decided that uh, while not being an expert in orthopedics at the time, there may be something better for me out there. And I decided to research the internet. And in my research, I found the words regenerative medicine and prolotherapy. And again, this is about 15 years ago now. And became an expert in internet knowledge of, of what prolotherapy was. Not necessarily regenerative medicine. But I said to my wife, I'm going to spend X amount of dollars on this. I've read enough that it can't hurt me if it's done in the right hands and may help me and may solve some of my problems, if not all of my problems in my back. So that said, and I'm going to cut to the chase, make the story a little bit shorter. Um, I found a doctor about an hour and a half north of me here in Florida. And after two sessions with where he did my back uh, and my sacroiliac joints and my gluteus muscles, I stood up and hugged him and put my finger in his chest and said, you're going to teach me how to do this because I had the time and I had the money. And uh, that led to a three-year friendship and a three-year mentorship uh, where this uh, physician basically taught me everything he knew. And then after three years, he said, you know enough. And we became partners. And I spent two years with him in his office in partnership. And because it was so far away, I was planning to open this office here in the Gables. When I opened this office, he was in his 80s already. And he closed up his office and became my mentor uh, down here in the Carl Gables office. That lasted just under a year because he developed kidney cancer and passed away. But that was how my entree was to uh, prolotherapy and then regenerative medicine with platelet-rich plasma and stem cells uh, through this uh, older doctor as my mentor and finding that it helped me tremendously and basically, it was a new look on uh, approach to uh, medicine. We're no looking at orthopedic and put in quotes surgery or spinal surgery. We're looking at actually ligaments and tendons that hold bones to bones or muscles to bones. And that's usually what goes bad. And you guys see it all the time in your practices in physical therapy and chiropractic work. But that what that what's goes what goes bad in most uh, patients that the doctors aren't really attuned to. They're attuned to doing a surgical procedure because that's what they're trained to do. Uh, the process of doing prolotherapy or PRP or stem cells uh, is injection oriented. It depends on putting injections in ligaments and tendons and knowing exactly where to put it. And this is not something that a routine orthopedist uh, or even spinal surgeon is trained to do. They're trained to either look at the uh, intradiscal space or the intraarticular space and put an injection in and call it a day. 
So the, the concept of treating, uh, let's say, a, a knee and doing 20 injections, uh, fully treating all the ligaments and tendons is a, a concept that's very appealing to me, A, being a patient and having my back treated and now my hips treated also, but also seeing over the years that I've done this now, many, many successes with both prolotherapy, rejection and generative uh, treatments, uh, pan, uh, 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 platelet-rich plasma injections, and variations of such, and stem cells. And uh, this is a whole new frontier in medicine that we're talking about now. It's kind of like the Wild West. Uh, you could ask me, is it covered by insurance? And the answer is no, uh, because it's a brand new field. Uh, things like this usually take 10, 15 years for insurance companies to cover it. Uh, they want to have lots and lots of level one uh, papers to prove its success rate before they'll do it, uh, in spite of the fact that there's lots and lots of uh, research out there now, it's still unapproved. So it's really for a population of people who are middle class or upper middle, middle class who can afford to have these type of procedures done on them. Athletes, I think, were the first people to discover these kind of treatments because you, you saw it with Kobe Bryant and uh, Major League Baseball players and football players and whatnot uh, going either to somebody uh, well experienced in the United States or elsewhere to, ha to have these treatments performed. So what's the premise behind the treatments? The premise behind the treatments is it's different than your normal routine orthopedic injection which would be a cortisone injection. Standard of care, for instance, in a typical orthopedic practice would be uh, you hurt your knee, you're going to either get a cortisone injection, then physical therapy, and then surgery. With regenerative medicine, uh, we bypass the cortisone injection and we go right to a regenerative injection into the ligaments and tendons, sometimes into the intraarticular space because we want to promote healing. The, a cortisone injection is, is what we call anti-inflammatory. So it gets rid of the inflammation that the injury has caused, uh, which in turn can reduce your pain or eliminate your pain. But that only holds for so long because it's not doing anything to cause any kind of healing in the initial injury. With prolotherapy or any form of rejection, uh, regenerative injections, what we tend to do is cause a good inflammation, uh, like turning an oven up from 200 degrees to 600 degrees and cooking a turkey. We're trying to get your body to actually heal the problem that's occurred and not mask it with an anti-inflammatory medicine like a steroid because the problem will continue to come back. A regenerative injection is different than a uh, reparative injection or, or a repair process because in a repair, you, you tend to get scarring. We're not talking about scarring. We're talking about the tissue actually coming back to look exactly like it looked initially, which is completely healed, so that you can't tell the difference between uh, uh, the initial injury and the, uh, the, the regenerative injected, injected area. They both look the same. So it's a really exciting field. Uh, you have to go to doctors that are experienced in uh, learning how to give these types of injections because the injections are the same no matter what's in the syringe, meaning a uh, prolotherapy solution 
I would give the same injections if I had platelet-rich plasma injections or stem cells. And stem cells we usually take from the same patient, from either your bone marrow or your fat. Uh, those injections are all given in the same way to heal a ligament or tendon injury. Uh, so that's the, that's the point. You have to know how to give injections well. You have to know your anatomy well. You're going by nerves, arteries, and veins, so you don't want to hurt anybody. Um, you're not going anywhere in the epidural space, although we have some uh, data now that we can do that too. But most of the time, we're, we're treating ligaments and tendons mostly. And that, by strengthening ligaments and tendons, uh, we're, we're able to heal all sorts of injuries like whiplash injuries from car accidents, low back pain, sacroiliac joint pain, gluteus uh, muscle pain, piriformis pain, uh, sciatic radiculopathies, uh, typical knee problems, uh, ankle uh, sprains and strains, and you name it. Do you consider the evidence to be sufficient at this point to conclude that prolo-PRP and stem cells are effective uh, treatments for musculoskeletal injuries? Uh, my answer to that would be yes and no. I think there's a host of uh, data out there that prolotherapy is good for musculoskeletal injuries and platelet-rich plasma. In fact, the field of musculoskeletal work and orthopedic work probably has the most data uh, for prolotherapy and uh, PRP or platelet-rich plasma injections that it does help in, in musculoskeletal diseases and injuries. As far as stem cell goes, this, the verdict on stem cells we're still trying to prove. We know that stem cells from your own body, meaning from your own bone marrow and from uh, your own fat cells, or for, let's say from a liposuction, are inherently better than taking it from somebody else. That much we know. We know that uh, you can buy uh, things that have been uh, advertised as stem cells, like uh, umbilical cord stem cells or uh, placental stem cells uh, or uh, amniotic stem cells. They're not really stem cells by the time it gets to you. Those stem cells have actually been uh, taken out during the, the freezing process or the sterilization process. So by the time it gets to you, those products have growth factors in them. Those growth factors are actually pretty good, but those growth factors are still less than the amount of growth factors that would be in your own PRP. So in English, it's easier to do your own PRP if you can have a blood drawer and you're not phobic to, uh, to having your blood drawn, that would be the best thing for you. And it'd be a lot more cost effective as well, right? Uh, yes, it is. Because the, the products that you buy uh, in these 1 ml aliquots from Amnion Placental have a huge high markup for it. And there's, is so there a good regulation for those types of stem cells? Because these things are so new, that's why you have a glut of companies now selling it. Every week there's a new salesman with a new company selling the same product and telling me why that particular product is the best. And basically they're all the same. But uh, we have the Food and Drug Administration in the United States that's, that's now uh, basically declared war on these companies and said you have to follow certain rules, regulations, and uh, they, they consider these type of things now a drug also. So uh, we'll see some, a lot of changes I think occur in the next year or two uh, through the FDA 
uh, actually monitoring these these companies. There's been several instances of infection from these companies, uh, lots of misinformation on who can actually do these type of injections. Uh, at times, you'll have nurse practitioners or naturopaths or people who've taken a weekend course uh, that are, are giving these injections compared to doctors who have done uh, residencies or fellowships or real specific training to do these things right. So you have to be really, really careful on who you go to right now. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit mm -hmm. more about that, too, and and quickly uh, differentiate between um, intraarticular stem cells versus intravenous stem cells. Yeah. Um, and what each of those promise. The intraarticular stem cells is mostly in the musculoskeletal field or orthopedic field. You would do an intraarticular injection for a shoulder or a hip or a knee, uh, places like that or ankle, and uh, those are very, very effective. When you're talking about intravenous medicine uh, of stem cells, you're getting into uh, branches of anti-aging or uh, what you've seen advertised for uh, desperate diseases like Alzheimer's diseases or Parkinson's disease or diabetes. The data really isn't in in the United States that IVs for anti-aging with stem cells uh, does anything. We have anecdotal studies that you'll see, you know, someone throw away their crutches and, and now they're able to walk uh, or a woman who, who couldn't speak from Parkinson's disease and now can speak. But there's actually no uh, scientific data out there that actually proves that these things are really, really happening. From an ethical standpoint, how are doctors just making these huge claims about what it does and kind of like luring in patients based on totally false information? I, I think that medicine, like any other field, has its, its small percentage of people who have uh, a lack of ethics uh, and who are into making money. Uh, simple as that. So that they 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 see an opportunity to uh, prey on people who have desperate conditions, mm -hmm. plain and simple. And uh, and just to give you guys an idea, um, there are doctors out there in South America that are doing these types of treatments, intravenous stem cells, and making all of these like crazy promises about what it'll do for you in terms of um, healing all sorts of injuries, all sorts of disease, um, with simply insufficient evidence. And I've even experienced it myself here in Florida. I went to see a doctor that got referred to me by a, a professional athlete that he had been doing stem cell treatments with. Um, and I was just shocked at just how seemingly confident he seemed selling me this product that I knew from just my own research and talking to more qualified doctors like Dr. Mal that it was just not true. But he was just lying just straight to my face. Um, and these treatments cost anywhere from $7,000 to $10,000 per treatment. And, you know, there's just no, not enough data to suggest that it actually does what it does. Is there regulation against that right now in the U.S., the intravenous stem cells? There, there's no regulation that I know about. Uh, you know, and any doctor who's licensed can do anything he wants. Uh, I think most doctors uh, will stick to what they're trained in. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily stop somebody from wanting to do brain surgery if he wants to do that. Uh, hospitals have specific rules, so you wouldn't be able to get privileges to do brain surgery if you were uh, an, an anesthesiologist. But, but, but still, there's, uh, there's enough leeway that people can get away with doing things that they really shouldn't be doing. 
um, the things that Stephanie has said have rang true because I've seen patients that come back to me in my practice. Um, a number of different things. The advertising that's out there lead people to believe that it's a one-shot deal. You can have this one intravenous treatment for anti-aging and live forever, or you can have your, your hamstring fixed forever uh, by one treatment of stem cells. And it just doesn't work that way, as we now find out with patients coming back that these, these techniques and treatments work, but you have to have them repeated over time. So for someone who goes to Latin America or, or who has stem cells here, I always tell them in my practice, stem cells is the last thing I want to do because you're not just signing up for one, a one-time uh, shot. You're signing up for it. You may need it again in the future, three months from now, six months from now, two years. So suddenly you're not spending $7,500 or $10,000. All of a sudden that becomes a $30,000 investment over time. So what I tend to do is, because I, I have the opportunity and the expertise in prolotherapy is start, I like to start slow, not hurt people. And 80% of the time I can cure people with prolotherapy, which is level one regenerative medicine. Can you explain what goes into the solution of prolo? Yeah. Uh, prolotherapy has been around a long time, uh, almost since the 1930s. Um, it fell out in the 1930s and early 40s, because that was about the same time that herniated disc surgery came into play. And that was much more sexy and involved more money. You didn't have to know anatomy as well, the, the anatomy of the whole body and whatnot. So prolotherapy over the years now has been refined where we basically use uh, solutions of dextrose, which is sugar water mixed with lidocaine and vitamins. And we now have level one evidence that that uh, increases the strength of ligaments and tendons by 40%, uh, gives us some further elasticity to the ligaments and tendons. So by treating the injury to the ligament and tendons, we're basically reducing the pain and causing healing. Uh, that's the basis of, of prolotherapy. Uh, the next few levels would be platelet-rich plasma is an extension of prolotherapy. These are what we call proliferants which uh, uh, cause a proliferation in the tissue or an inflammation, but it's a good inflammation that causes a healing response. It's the same way you cut your hand and the platelets come into play and stop the bleeding. This is what we're doing inside the body now, manipulating the platelets. We can actually, uh, here in my laboratory here, I have a way of uh, either giving you platelet-rich plasma injections and waiting seven days for the platelets to open up and release the healing factors, or I can kill the platelets in my laboratory and take out the growth factors and just give you growth factors. So it all depends on the type of injury you have as to what kind of platelet-rich plasma procedure I and do for you. And that's a technique that you developed here at the lab, right? Yes, I, I did that with a, a group out of Chicago. There's a lot of products I test research-wise. We also do platelet counts, too, for anybody who's out there now who's who's having a, a platelet-rich rich plasma injection. They should know their platelet count before they have the injection and the platelet count of what the doctor's giving back, meaning the concentration, because we now know that... Uh, if your platelet count is 200,000, you want to have at least a million cells or a million and a half cells put back in your body for it to have any real effective healing response. 
So if your healing response is going to be 300,000, that's going to be very poor considering having over a million cells put back in. That was one of the biggest issues that we saw. We did all did a lit review before coming. And that was one of the biggest issues we saw, especially as it pertains to PRP, that there's lack of heterogeneity when it comes to the types of PRP that people are getting done, like leukocyte concentrations, platelet concentrations, use of an exogenous activating agent, the speed of the centrifuge, the number of cycles that they use, the order of, of pellet and uh, separation. The time Ex uh, spent between extraction and, and injection. injection. I've studied all these things in my laboratory here. Um, there's probably over a hundred different types of centrifuges with different speeds and times, rec recommended speeds and times for each one to perform a PRP. And it also depends on how big the centrifuge is and the rotors they have and whatnot. Uh, there is no standard, uh, standardization of a PRP uh, for musculoskeletal work or any other field for Do that Do you feel matter. like it's needed? It's definitely needed because you have... There's, there's too much leeway between how people do it. So uh, what you may get in one person's office is different from what you'd get in somebody else's office. Now, the way to have that partially solved is by doctors having platelet counts and knowing that if they take your platelet count to start with, then it's 200,000, and then they go through their laboratory procedure with whatever centrifuge they have, if they're able to come up with over a million platelet cells to put back in you, then you know you're at least getting effective treatment. But if they're not counting platelets, then you have no clue what you're getting put back in your body. So that, that to me, should be the, the first standard of care for somebody undergoing platelet-rich plasma injections. Sounds and like a great quiz for the listeners, too, if anyone is seeking out platelets or platelet-rich plasma, you know, pop quiz your doctor on that. If they can give you that answer, you know, you're probably at a better place than if they have no clue. Yeah. Please ask questions to your doctor to corroborate the information that he's giving you. Don't just take everything that he's telling you at face value because he's a physician. Ask him questions and make sure that he understands what he's giving you. And the reason doctors don't do platelet counts is because it's not a cost-effective uh, machine to have in their office. These things can cost $12,000 to $15,000. But if you're doing a procedure on people, uh, you, you really should have the right equipment, basically. Um, I'm, I'm doing a research now on a platelet counter from the Netherlands right now, besides the usual platelet counter that I have, where we're trying to uh, have a platelet counter in the $3,000 to $5,000 range for physicians to afford it so at least they can have some basic means of, uh, of having a platelet count before they give the shot. And that brings up your other point that you were talking about the amount of white blood cells and the amount of red blood cells in, in platelet-rich plasma, which are important too because you want red blood cells or you want white blood cells in your platelet-rich plasma, depending on what you're treating. If you're treating near a nerve or if you're treating near a, uh, a tendon, it's different. So um, nowadays we want not just a platelet counter, but a complete blood counter too, where we can count the number of white blood cells and red blood cells we have besides the number of platelets. So that, that's just a little pearl that, that's just, like you said, really, really important. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is don't buy these off-the-shelf products that are coming from somebody else, from amniotic uh, products or mm -hmm. placental or uh, umbilical. And the latest buzzword is exosomes. There's no 
white papers published or proof that it has any effect. Exosomes are cell signals, signaler, signalers, pronounce that word better. And uh, they're in your growth factors anyway, so nobody's telling them what to do. You might as well get your growth factors, which which uh, basically is the computer chips to tell them what to do. And mm-hmm. companies are claiming to add exosomes to stem cell treatments, and yeah. are, are these combining with all, all yeah, kind yeah. of regenerative injections? Yeah. Like, how are they packaged? Well, they're packaged separately as mm. another add-on for um, the companies to make money. Okay, so stem so, cells plus exosomes. Yeah, so you, you just don't yeah. need it. Yeah. So By the way, yeah, stem it. cells is like a $2 billion market, yeah. is what we found, That's which right. is crazy, right? That's right. Yeah. It's going to be the wave of the future because you get into all sorts of uh, genetics now. We've broken the genetic code some years ago, so we can take bad genes out of animals and put in good genes and and cure paralysis that way. And that's headed down the road for, for human beings in the next 10 or 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and regenerative medicine is all part of that gene splicing, gene therapy type of work that's going on in the labs now. Can we um can we quickly touch on the quality of the available evidence as far as PRP stem cell and Prolo goes? When we're looking, when we're trying to um, appraise the literature, are we looking at patient-centered outcomes like pain and function, or are we looking at more relevant surrogates like the changes that we see on an x-ray or on an MRI? I, I think you're going more for, for what patients talk about as to uh, level of function and a reduction of pain are the two most important things that we look for when we do these studies. Um, sometimes we can see improvements on x-rays and MRI, but most of the times an MRI shows us, and we tell our patients it's 50% more damage than what's than what patients really complain about. Mm-hmm. Or a patient's complaining of pain, but you see so much damage on yeah. the MRI that you don't really know where is the pain coming from. It's not specific. Because the, the, they're, they're so specific that they give you too much information. So I, I think w- we have enough studies, at least in the musculoskeletal world, to, to tell us that range of motion is improved with shoulders, knees, hips, and reduction of pain. Um, and cadaver studies too that are showing strengthening and thickness of of tendons mm-hmm. tendons and ligaments are, so i'm oh, sorry i was just gonna ask are there certain qualities of patients that seem to do better in your experience versus others um younger be- patients tend to do better than older patients for obvious reasons yeah. they have better immune systems better healing powers uh the, the concept of uh regenerative medicine all regenerative medicine is stimulating the body to help heal itself. So it has that kind of holistic approach too. And younger people have better immune systems that we can basically boot up mm. when we're giving an injection of platelet-rich plasma or stem cells or, or prolotherapy. It's turning on the, your inner body signal to help itself too from having that off sign and, and ignoring the problem. We're able to turn the signal on uh, to let your brain think that there's a new problem in your body and to start sending proteins and chemicals down there and growth factors to heal it. So uh, that's an important point. Yeah. Older people we're finding with stem cells, you know, don't necessarily do as well as, as younger folks. Does that well, change oh, sorry, Does that change your management of older versus younger people? It definitely changes mine because I'm, I hesitate to do bone marrow stem cells on older folks 
I'll do more fat stem cells on older folks, but to put them through major procedures that can cause them pain or, mm-hmm. or add more misery to them, I just don't want to do. What mm-hmm. is the procedure for those that don't know? Um, you, you're talking about for stem cells? Yeah, to remove it from the bone marrow. For, for when you do stem cells on a, a person, uh, the best place to take it from, there are several different places, is the iliac crest, which is the back of your, your bone. Uh, and, and basically, uh, the way to do it is to have really good anesthesia because the process can hurt if you don't have good anesthesia. And, um, and then you, you basically make a hole through that iliac crest uh, with something called a trocar, which is a, basically a big needle. And you pull out 10 cc's of blood to 60 cc's of blood. Uh, and then we, we centrifuge that down in our laboratory to give us the stem cells. And the alternative way is to take uh, fat, doing a liposuction, typically like a, like a plastic surgeon would do a liposuction. Some people do it from the front of your body, from your uh, abdomen. That's how I do it. Some people do it from your glute muscles in the back. Um, and take fat. Now, in the United States, the fat that we do now is not really stem cells. It's more for what we call a fat graft. Uh, which in English would mean for you, if you have a defect in a rotator cuff uh, in your shoulder, rotator cuff tear, or in a hip tear or a knee tear, we're filling the gap with the fat. And that in itself has lots of growth factors and proteins, maybe some stem cells. But the FDA has stopped using fat for stem cells in the United States. That much you'd have to go overseas to have fat stem cells done. Uh, so we have we have some... Um, pretty rigorous rules in the United States about how we do certain stem cell procedures, which I think are good by the FDA. They fall short of of policing the amount of people who are advertising procedures that that are sham procedures. Mm. So that's where the FDA and the licensure boards needs to come in uh, better for us. So I have one more question for you as far as the quality of the research. How... Is, or do you consider that there's adequate um, sham control on how to separate the benefits, the true benefits from these treatments versus, uh, to placebo? Um, I do, yes. Because, you know, when you've been in the field a while, you know who the good researchers are and who the, the ones who are just, you know, not there. So <laughs> we have some, some good names in the field. Uh, Dean Reeves is one name out of Kansas City. David Rabago, I forget where he is maybe Wisconsin. These are people who have active researchers. They have active programs in research. And so they have the reputation for us of, uh, of doing good work. There's a fellow named Hernigo, I think out of France or Spain. Uh, so these are the, the, we have a group of probably half a dozen, a dozen names that we follow that are producing really, really good work. And most of us know who the, the, the sham people are too. And that's something that we you know, found in our um, review of the literature is that there's a lot of ongoing pre-registered trials, right? And as in the early history of any uh, treatment or intervention, you get a lot of stuff that you don't know where it came from, a lot of stuff that emerges. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah, going to be interesting to see how that, it evolves when we- That when brings we, up a pet peeve of mine, yeah. which is there's a, uh, an internet website called clinicaltrials.gov Mm-hmm. that anybody and their brother can sign up for and say yeah. they're doing a clinical trial. Yeah. But what you alluded to is 
once the doctor signs up to do that, there's no follow-up mm. or they drop out. Yeah. So in the beginning, they sort of run it as a sham maybe. Yeah. I don't know if I'm saying the right thing or get in trouble. But for a year or so, they can get away with this and, and, and appear in quotes righteous. Yeah. And then they don't follow through with any data or anything else. And these are what we call self-funded studies, mm. meaning that the patients are paying for it themselves. And I can think of, I'm not going to name them, but three or four studies that are out there now and have been out there three or four years with no data coming out yet. So it's um, just a way to sort of bypass pass the approval process? And, and, and have some appearance of legitimacy. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, I'm, I don't know how to solve it. It's, it's you know, government tried to do it thinking they were being helpful. And now they're realizing that it, you know, it's sort of turned around on them. So hopefully they'll figure out some way to. Right, because we do need some sort of pre-registering. Yeah, absolutely. In, in medical trials, right? Absolutely. The good people are doing mm. the right thing, but yeah. you still got that percentage of people out there that are manipulating that system for their own well-being. And by the time you get to them, they're out of business. Do you see it too with the stem cell companies that are quote unquote questionable companies throwing a lot of money at their own research to make it sound better than it is? I mean, I know we see that a ton with uh, pharmaceuticals. And again, in the supplement world, you see that all the time where they throw some money at some research and some pseudoscience just so that their product looks better than everybody else's? Uh, the answer is yes to that too. That, that, and like you say, that's in every field. Um, it happens all the time in regenerative medicine, all the time. I'm president-elect of the American Academy of Orthopedic Medicine, which is a group of some 250, 300 doctors that it started out uh, orthopedically oriented, and, and now it's more or less regenerative medicine oriented, which are the leaders in the field of uh, prolotherapy, PRP, and stem cells. And we fight these battles all the time on you know, how we educate the public better to know who to go to, to know that uh, people really need uh, a fluoroscope to do necks and backs. If you're going to do neck and back work or spine work, you need a fluoroscope. You need an ultrasound to look at people's shoulders and hips and joints and at least make sure there's some basic standardization of, of how an examination is done. And again, the same thing with platelet counting too. If you're going to have PRP done, that the doctor is competent enough or does enough to count platelets. You know, if he's doing one a month, you, you don't really want to go to a doctor who's doing one a month of anything. Um, there's a saying that it takes uh, five years, five doctors in three years to find the right diagnosis for patients. So you have to be careful when you're you have a serious problem. So after you've gotten any of these treatments done, um, then we move into the rehabilitation part. So there's a field, or not a field, but what's called regenerative rehab, right? And that's something that, Bill, you're familiar with. Can you tell me just a little bit about it? Yeah, so that's the, you know, the branch off of regenerative medicine is our role in the regenerative rehab process. We put forces through tissues every day, all day, whether it be exercise or manual therapies or even some of the modalities that we're still using. And we have the potential to to change the microenvironment around where that injection is gone. And that can be either for the better or for the worse. So you really have to understand what's going into these injections, what's happening at the cellular and molecular level so that you can apply the right sort of stresses because a tissue like bone that's load absorbing and load um, transmitting is, or 
load absorbing is the wrong term, so get rid of that. Load transmitting <laughs> is going to react differently than to something that is load absorbing, like a meniscus. So you need to understand what tissue is is being injected or what tissue you're injecting and working on healing to understand what sort of procedure you put them through after. Mm -hmm. And that's quote unquote, the field of regenerative rehab is understanding these nuances so that you can help with cell differentiation. So PRP stem cell, even Prolo, they've got a, of a range of effectiveness and you can help push towards the higher end of that range if you're giving them the right sort of exercises or stimulus. Stimulus mm -hmm. is the better term. And you can really push towards the lower end of that range if you have no clue what you're doing and you throw them onto anything that may not be the most perfect sort of plan of care. Mm -hmm. I think that's important too because the, the concept of physical therapy with some semblance of chiropractic care kind of go hand in hand with regenerative medicine in that you have all these patients that you're working on and you're not getting them better. And those are the patients you know that need some form of injections to stimulate their body and get that ligament and tendon better healed. And then when they come back to you after that treatment, they're going to stay in place better. They're going to hold better. They, they just do, they generally do better with physical therapy and chiropractic care afterwards. And there's some, some states that actually require the MD or the DO to specifically order physical therapy or chiropractic care once they're done with the regenerative injection treatment. Mm -hmm. So I find that really important that, and patients come back after having PT, once the injections are done, they go, yeah, I'm better now, it's holding me. And you find they say stable for a, for a while until they do something, you know, if they're an athlete, they're gonna do something eventually. And then I call it, they come in for tune-ups. Mm -hmm. So that's what it's all about. And that brings up another point of, of a way that we benefit our outcomes as well, because with these injections, we're now getting put in advantage because we're growing back viable functional tissue, not just scar tissue. Exactly. Someone comes in after surgery or a cortisone injection, what you're healing through and what you're strengthening around is scar tissue that doesn't help them stay strong, stay fast, stay mm -hmm. mobile. Instead, with these regenerative injections, you're laying down new viable tissue. So our outcomes are just going to look better, too, as long as we've we've got the knowledge base to handle these type of patients, which is sort of a pitfall from some studies I've read as to this not being taught in school or part of the curriculum for most PT programs across the country. It's not at all. I don't think we even spoke about this. Do you think that's because the research has to have time to catch up and and be more conclusive. I mean, we could fill an hour long podcast with the pitfalls of the PT curriculum across the country, but it's partially that. And it's, it's partially because the purpose of the PT curriculum, and I can't speak to other professions as well as to pass the boards and the boards are outdated. So if the boards are outdated, your curriculum's outdated. And that just is a perpetuating cycle that that doesn't allow these new things to come in quite as soon as they should be implemented in the in the curriculum. And it's the same thing in, in orthopedic residencies. We're training doctors now, even though it's called American Academy of Orthopedic Medicine, we're training pain medicine doctors, sports medicine docs, family docs, uh, anesthesia docs. They're coming from all walks of life to learn regenerative medicine, and it's not taught in their residencies. So I think there are two residencies that teach some form of prolotherapy. 
PRP is just catching on, but more from an intra-articular standpoint, not from a uh, a complete treatment of of every ligament and tendon, let's say in a knee or a shoulder. Mm -hmm. So it has to catch up. Like you said, it has to catch up. But, But in general, do you find the evidence currently to be conclusive, especially for the use of regenerative medicine for the treatment of musculoskeletal injuries? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's. Why are people? It, why are some some physicians still so skeptical? Um, because they either they either haven't trained in it or haven't read about it. It's A or B, and I'm being polite when I say that. Um, it, it, everything has to take its time to catch on. If they're not trained in it, I've lectured with docs, and we've both lectured, and the doctor knows. I know you do a lot of prolotherapy, and I don't believe in it. And I probably have treated ten thousand patients or more. And I'm not going to educate him when I get an ignorant remark like that. It just, you you can't deal with somebody like that. They have to figure it out for themselves. But uh, people are catching on. People are learning about it. Athletes are swearing by it now. So it is, it is slowly getting there. Uh, Insurance wise, I think that if insurance paid for this, uh, they wouldn't be making the profits they they're making because it's a great way to, to treat pain. And, and basically what we're doing is we're either preventing or delaying surgical procedures indefinitely. If you're making your living being a surgeon, you have a real problem with doctors like me um, because you're not going to them anymore and you're signing up for your total knee replacement when you can suffer through some pain with injections and have your own anatomy for another three to five years or your hip or something like that. So, so you know, it depends on how you're looking at the, at the world as to, you know, where you're coming from. When I, when I announced on my social media channel that I was going to be talking about stem cells therapy and Brolo with a specialist, um, I got a couple of messages from physicians that were, um, criticizing these treatments mainly because they feel like the current research doesn't really account for placebo, which is the, what Ian and I were talking about before. Yeah. I mean, we were just talking about, right, and I think you have a lot of interesting thoughts on it, on the on the ways different researchers kind of design their studies mm-hmm. and whether it's, you know, out of la- intellectual laziness or out of um, some sort of bias. Uh, but I think there's a, an interesting, it's like three different questions, essentially. It's, is there, does it reduce pain? I think it can easily be addressed you know, with experience in low quality trials, then there's to what extent does it reduce pain different than other treatments? Like is what specific effect, like in terms, because we're always concerned with just, you know, pain function at long, you know, time points or in, in terms of. I mean, I'm, I'm smirking because I, I, I'd love to take all of you and any doctor yeah. who wants to, yeah. I'll take them down to anywhere in the world, Latin America, Mexico, Ecuador, uh, Peru, where I train and teach and you'll see people that will hug you and kiss you and cry because you're you're giving them a shot and they've suffered for two years or more in pain from from a hip scar. The scar, forget the they had surgery, but just the scar itself is too tight and giving them grief. So you you and you open up the scar. Just silly things like that. Or somebody who can't raise their arm more than two inches because they have a frozen shoulder or rotator cuff damage and you inject all the tendons in their shoulder and suddenly they're raising it to the top like that. You know, just so many instances like that that make you a believer. That's why it's usually the doctors who have not seen it done or read about it that are the ones who are most 
critical of it. And, and we were, we were discussing it earlier, actually, about how it's difficult for us to remove our biases when we read studies that don't speak highly of it because we both used it. You know, I've, yeah, I've we're, had, we're both patients of Dr. Ma. Yeah. I, and I've, I've had it done in Canada as well. So I've had my knee, I've mm-hmm. had my shoulder, hamstring. In Toronto? I've done in Toronto through uh, the Gallia Clinic. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, I may have trained that person, I think. Really? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've had success with all of it, with both PRP and with prolotherapy. So, uh, you know, it, it's tough to obviously remove the bias, but then I feel like I've also been given proof that it's been, that it's worked well for me because I've gone in, had an ultrasound done in my shoulder where I've had a tear. I've had the PRP done. I've mm-hmm. gone through the, the, uh, physiotherapy or physical therapy. And then I've gone back and they've been able to show me that the tear isn't there anymore. Right. You know, we so see that all the time too. For me, I, I felt like that was good enough proof for me to, to show that in that instance in particular, it, it worked. So my third question that I posed to them was, and I think you have an interesting perspective, which is why I asked the eight, you know, the, the, which patients do best question is I think patients ultimately care about, will it help me? I don't care about averages. I don't care about this condition or that condition, me, my circumstance, my condition. And I think, and you have some interesting thoughts about kind of where this is going, but with right, better access to data and the automation of records, we can hopefully make better predictions about who will work for and even to what extent it will work because there might be things that seem totally unrelated to the presenting complaint that actually predict outcomes better than things we would have, we would have thought. We're, we're coming up with things, talking about American Academy of Orthopedic Medicine, mm-hmm. where we have a certification program for doctors in mm-hmm. regenerative medicine. Um, we're also having a, a accumulation of data where we'll send in a, a database of patients who have shoulder, knee, mm-hmm. hip, whatever kind of problems, so that we can, we can basically collate this data and really give you examples of it. Um, I'm also smiling when you ask that question because it's one of these things that done in the right hands, you can't really be harmed mm-hmm. if the doctor knows what he's doing. It's always doing. a risk benefit analysis, right? Yeah. And, and, and so, so like your shoulder was done, if they do it in the right place, they're strengthening that ligament and tendon. That much we know. So you may still develop a tear or rip depending on what you're lifting and what you're doing, but we, we know that the treatment itself is not going to give you uh, a negative outcome unless the doctor did something wrong or put the needle in the wrong place, plain and simple. That's why you're doing your research on knowing who you go to and mm-hmm. where. Um, one last question, and then we can wrap it up because we're coming up on the hour mark. Why do you think our physicians still using cortisone shots to treat injuries when the current body of literature is pretty much against it? I think if you've been in practice a long time and you're used to doing something and you see it work, you tend to go to it as first line. I still use steroids too. If you came into me and your knee was really full, filled with fluid, I would take, I would use a steroid to, uh, I would take the fluid out of your knee and then put a steroid in there to counteract the inflammation and then wait several weeks and start my regenerative process. So there still is, uh, there still is a mechanism to use steroids with the right approach. We know that multiple injections hurt ligaments, tendons, and bone. So now that we, we know that, especially oral steroids too, you get avascular a necrosis in your hip and then you need a hip replacement. Um, but, but steroids used for the right indications is a good thing. So it's not something we should just throw away yet. 
Um, and that, that's, that's the key to, to that. All right. So uh, does anyone have any more questions for Dr. Mal? That'll do it for me. No? Ian? No, no questions. Okay, good. Uh, we're going to take a short break and we'll come back to you with some Florida man and some recent fitness gossip. And we're back. Welcome back. My babies. No. <laughs> Please don't use that line. These are my babies. All right. All right. Uh, <clears throat> so we got the sports fitness gossip segment coming up. Uh -huh. So there's two things that I want to talk about. All right. First, Russia. Did you see this? Four-year ban yep. from all uh, global sports. No Olympics and no World Cup. All international sport. Yep. Yes, sir. Yeah. What, what was it because of? They, I think they found that they were continuing to like tamper with the investigation or something like that. Yeah, so, it stemmed out of that original doping scandal. I didn't know if they found more tests or, or false tests or any <laughs> sort of evidence that wasn't right. And and they can they continue to test the same samples because they have access to them for eight years. And I think as the tests develop, they continue to get more positives as well. Yeah, well, they, they did for sure. Mm -hmm. I remember Russia got kicked out of uh, weightlifting mm -hmm. at the last Olympics, right? Mm -hmm. And did you see what they did? Well, their whole last Olympics, they had to compete as an independent well, as athlete in, uh, of Russia right. or something Pem like Chang that. In Korea for the Winter Olympics. In the Winter Olympics, they had to compete under an Olympic flag. Right, there was no That's Russian right. athletes, so That's Russians right. had to individually petition the Olympic Committee to be permitted to compete wow. unaffiliated with their country. But in 2016, individual teams were banned. Right, that was a big thing. They didn't ban track and field, and they obviously should have. Right, you know, and weightlifting was a smaller sport that was clearly just of not even just blowing by rules, not even paying attention to. Did you see what <laughs> the Russian weightlifting team did? They had their own meet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, so the day of the, or during the time where weightlifting was going on in the Olympics, they were running the same weight classes that were competing at the Olympics at the same time, just to show how much they would have crushed everybody by. So they're like, ah, screw the Olympics. In weightlifting? Like, in weightlifting, yeah. So they just had their own separate competition in Russia being like, this is what our athletes would have done. How do they compare? While testing positive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, they did great. <laughs> they did great they got to take tons of gear and, <laughs> and do their own meat so yeah they're probably some of their best results i wonder what that means for the world cup do they just compete as independent soccer team from russia like they did in the olympics or no, are they just think so you can't qualify sorry see you later and that's yeah. a long time four years yeah you On know top what, though, of what honestly, it's already done dude if one guy tests positive it's an automatic four-year ban you're telling me that this entire country can strategically try to cheat the system. And they only get fake tests and do all yeah. this shit. And it's like, they got a four year ban too. <laughs> like it's so much worse. And you're so yeah. organized. Russia is so good at espionage and like back channeling and shady stuff. How the heck did they get caught? I expect somebody you know, like I expect Canada to get caught. Yeah. They're too nice to lie. <laughs> yeah, for real. Well, I think the idea was they it's not a concern to get caught. It's right. Right. Cause they weren't, they weren't beating the test. They yeah. were just not doing the test. Yeah. They were so bold. They, all that matters <laughs> is that on in Sochi that they won. Right. It was all about Sochi. Right. Right. And that they had this, you know, historic performance. The, the consequences in international sports governance don't matter because you can easily confuse the public as to, you know, the validity of the sanctions and well, everyone's doing it. You can defend against that. The purpose in terms of 
I think the Russian government's organization of a state-sponsored doping system is only to win medals, assuming that winning medals actually serves the interests of the Russian government. Right. All right. But then, international sports. But could you argue, though, that it, it wasn't a net positive for them because now they're going to have to miss four years of competitive global sports? It wasn't. Well, I think you, well, you can argue that it was a net positive for Sochi. Right, and they might have they might have poorly calibrated the consequences in the decade afterwards, but right. it doesn't matter because that was that was the revival of Russian confidence in the Putin regime. Why are sports sure. so important for Russians? It's war without the weapons. That was the Orwell thing. Yeah, huh? <laughs> war without the weapons. I mean, it's, it's another. They want to exhibit dominance over. Yeah, that's a classic else. without invading and taking over. Well, and countries. also Russian Russian national identity is something that's. Very, um, it's hard to conceptualize what the cost of the the Soviet Union's you know dissolution was to to people who believed in Russia's place in the world. That it was the opposite pole of the U.S. and all of a sudden it it crumbled and was a fraction of its former influence. And there was a there was a a shift in in national identity and a loss of right this this sense of purpose as you know, a a people in a nation. And one of the, it seems like one of the mo- motives of Putin is to revive that and reassert Russia's place as a key player in the world. Mm-hmm. And that also involves reviving the Soviet sports system mm-hmm. that, sure. that competed, you know, on an equal level with countries in the West, even without, even with a fraction of the population and the wealth and, right, it's it's on the same level as armament and political right. action and right economic uh, decision making. How do we go ahead? Has everyone here seen Icarus? Yeah, I was yes. just going to mention that. Is so, that wait, like is, that? Was that the beginning of the scandal? That was about the Russian doping scandal in yeah. Sochi. But what I what surprised me the most about that whole thing was not that Russia was cheating, but it was just how like rudimentary their way of cheating the system was like it was so basic you're telling me you just screwed the tops off of samples and passed well, them through they were a wall un, they are they were tamper-proof bottles that they were yeah, able but, to open <laughs> except for when they were successfully tampered with. yeah yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> but i don't know i just thought it was like it was just the most ba- I, th- I always thought something was gonna be so high tech they were making synthetic samples or doing something yeah. but it's like no yeah. they literally put it through a hole in right the wall. but the thing was it was like if you could easily bypass the the anti-doping measures if you weren't doping during the olympics they were so bold as to say we want to dope during the olympics how can we accomplish that it was like you have to get rid of the sample that is in the testing bank Mm -hmm. (laughs) right true do they get out of competition testing yeah uh not in country not in russia russia doesn't have any obligation to do anything in country unless it's internationally an international meet or obviously, if their athletes go internationally, right? Where they there's because the idea was Rusada was an arm of the state-sponsored doping system, so right. all they would do was test athletes to understand how they could beat the tests. Wow! <laughs> oh my god! Um, are we all done with that one? Because yeah. I have another something that I was interested in. Okay, is it brief? Yeah, it's brief. Okay. So I thought this would be a good one for you and Bill to actually touch on, maybe because I don't like talking to Bill. Same. Well, I'm out. I'll ask you to put aside <laughs> your differences for okay. this uh, for this next segment. Okay. Um, so there was that guy just recently, he, big dude. I can't remember his name. 
pretty popular powerlifter, but he just tore his bicep deadlifting. Uh, something ridiculous like 415 kilos or whatever, right? And every time something like this happens, you see the same comments coming up over and over again where it's like, this is why I pull hook grip or what a dummy. He shouldn't have been pulling with his arms and like all these pretty misguided ideas of why bicep tears happen in the deadlift. So I wanted you guys to clarify that because I think you had said something earlier about lack of external rotation or something and how that can lead to those sorts of issues. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, it's hard to just um, draw a direct correlation between a particular movement or a particular load and the increased incidence for a particular injury. But there are things that we know could maybe potentially increase the amount of stress and force that goes through certain structures that might certainly increase the chance of an injury like that happening. So one of the things that I look into is um, the amount of external rotation available at the level of the shoulder. Because what happens is that sometimes they're, when people don't have enough external rotation, that shoulder, especially on that arm that's supinated, then that your body compensates for increasing the amount of external rotation or supination at the level of the elbow. And the main muscle that supinates the forearm is the bicep. So essentially you're kind of like activating and, str and, stra and straining more the bicep at the forearm um, to hold on to the, to compensate for the uh, for the range of motion that's less at the at the shoulder, so that's what what's something yeah. that somebody could do if they have that issue, they're lacking the ro rotation in their shoulder. What how do you gain that? I mean, passively from stretch into external rotation, and then also increasing your ability to activate those external rotators in end range, so that when you're in that deadlift supinated position, you can activate those external external rotators when they're already semi-shortened to get that last few degrees because you're only talking small percentages mm -hmm. here. It's not like you need to add 20% of external rotation. You just need to add one or 2%. Yeah. So mm -hmm. by working on enhancing their ability to, to fire and contract from an already shortened position, you can help force that joint into a little bit more of a full range, mm -hmm. quote unquote. Yeah. And I, I think... I think you guys would agree that a lot of that can be done in a warm up and a lot of times it's even good enough to to get people feeling like they can actually turn their palm and face the wall in front of them without working too hard to do it. Yeah, yeah totally. For sure. Right. You know, you're so you're like, not under the same demands yeah. as a baseball pitcher no. who yeah. needs, you know, 180 yeah. degrees. The thing the thing crazy is crazy external rotation. And if you really can enough is, to get to neutral, right? The thing is with power lifters, um it's it really, I understand what you're saying in terms of the demand that we have for external rotation of the shoulder. But have you seen like how much motion these guys lose? They keep adding more mass and, you know, more weight. And they literally go from being able to do a, a squad with like where they externally rotate their shoulders to hold onto the bar to not being able to even hold onto the bar inside of the yeah, we're like pressing on the yeah. plates. Like they literally have to sometimes <laughs> press against the plates because they've lost so much external rotation that they, or they can't even do that and, and they have like awful pain they have to like get help to like get under the bar yeah. do you attribute so, that to their bench huh what do you attribute that to you lose it you you yeah. either yeah. you use it or you lose it right they're just not they're just not putting themselves in in yeah do you think that's a case for more variation in like the assistance work in powerlifting like cuz right they need exposure to different movements to mm -hmm. preserve just access put your to those freaking hands over your head every once yeah, in a while yeah, yeah. Like, do some overhead press movements, right? yeah yeah. <laughs> and especially in an off season situation or further from meets. Right? Absolutely. Right. And even low level exercises can be helpful just for, for 
retaining those positions and developing strength in them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. be an athlete. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't neglect, don't neglect mobility. That's something that even I struggled with at the beginning that I got so caught up on just trying to get stronger and, and mm. over specializing on the squat bench and deadlift that I forgot all other aspects of human movement and performance, you know, yeah. mobility, flexibility, they certainly have a time mm. and place for everyone, including powerlifters. Yeah. It's always that so tension, that right? Cause, cause stiffness is adaptive. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. then a lot, of, but, a lot of the game too is who can stay healthy and not be injured the longest because how the, big are his numbers going to drop now that he's got a torn biceps and he's got to wait for it's the most important part of the six game. months. Yeah. No, you, if you don't, if you're not healthy, you can't continue to compete. Yeah. One um, quick thing. So a quick test that you can do to see if you have the amount of external rotation that you need is one test that I learned from uh, Jordan Shallow from Muscle Doc. So essentially you supinate both arms. So essentially try to uh, put your arms in front of you and face, try to, try for your palms to face the ceiling and if you find your thumbs to be like overly twerking or you find yourself trying to overly supinate with your thumbs then that means that there's uh the motions coming mostly from the forearms versus like if you can just put them up and and have them face face to the ceiling uh we're all testing it here yeah. for yeah. everyone who's listening we all have our palms facing up yeah, yeah. If, if successfully if this doesn't <laughs> If this doesn't make any sense, just look it up. Uh, I actually think I made a whole video yeah, about it. Video. Elbow, yeah, it's one of your first YouTube yeah. videos, right? Elbow pain and actually no elbow strains. It's in my Instagram, right? Huh? Yeah. Okay, whatever. That's it. Florida man. The whole reason Florida I showed man? up today. <laughs> we got a Florida man story. No. Just do the Florida man challenge. Your birthday. Yeah, let's do the Florida man challenge. Just do Bill's birthday. All right, March twenty second for anyone who's out there. Looking to get me a gift. March 22nd. Florida man. Florida man. What do we got? Florida man shoved woman to get at her egg rolls, police say. <laughs> well, that's a that's valid. Fair enough. Florida man what? That's he, a he rational Florida rolls. man. Oh, <laughs> what <are you> doing? <laughs> Florida man calls police to say he paid for sex and got scammed. <laughs> oh, man, nice. you can't do that. That's not even Florida. That's Miami. Uh, that's sir, like, you're... Where are you? You're under arrest. Please stay there. <laughs> Sir, my illegal hooker stole my watch. Yeah. I actually treated a cop who dealt with a lot of those cases. She was one of my patients and she had all these guys that would come in and be like, so this girl, I thought she really liked me. We got back to the hotel room and all of a sudden I'm passed out and my watch and my wallet are gone. Oh, and my. Like oh, multiple classic. occasions, or they would take them home, not to a hotel, and all my watches and valuables were gone. <laughs> and so more often than that, she'd be like, well, do you have a wife? Like, what's the scenario here? Because if we report this, your wife's going to find out. And more often than not, these guys would be like, nah, never mind. We can just bury the lead here. Wow. And they would eat the, the cost of whatever got stolen. But these girls would just roofie them, wait till they passed out, and take their stuff and head at home. Dude, didn't uh, Nicki Minaj say, say, like, say publicly that she used to do that? Yeah. yeah. Was it her? Yeah. Or Cardi B? Ooh. It was one of them. It was one of them. But I think it might be Cardi B. Yeah. I, I, now that I think about it, it might so have been. Something is get away with that. Yeah, but she took a bunch of uh, heat for it. People were like, you can't just say that. Yeah, that's, that's super the, illegal. Like, Use yeah. those <laughs> drug dudes and take their stuff. But I don't know what ended up happening with that. Nothing? Famous, Nothing. Uh, she's too, famous. too famous to get in trouble. Slap on the wrist. Yeah. <laughs> what are you looking up there, Colin? <laughs> um, I'm looking up. You know who, who we should have? We yeah. could literally do an entire Florida man episode if we brought 
Tony, real world tactical oh my God. on the thing. His oh whole God. life was just dealing with Florida men <laughs> doing absurd things. <laughs> you got anything good for us? Let me see. Where was he a police officer? Miami did. Oh, that's, yeah. I mean, this is a good one. Florida men arrested for attempting to barbecue a child molester. That's kind of valid. Yeah. Nice. Barbecue. Florida man Rex liquor store blames it on Caterpillar. <laughs> <laughs> Not the most likely suspect. <laughs> oh my God. That's All crazy. Right. That's enough crazy Florida yeah. man. Florida yeah. man's getting out of hand. Uh, hey, there was a real one right down the street. Uh. Oh, the guys that, that robbed happened. the jewelry store and then kidnapped the UPS driver and used a UPS oh truck God. out of all things. Oh, yeah. There was like, a, oh, here. a million you know, cars around a, here that are just fast. I've seen a ton of uh, and four people stuff, died, right? like where people are getting upset with UPS and stuff because UPS apparently said they're not going to pay for the funeral and it was the UPS driver's first day alone. And I'm like, what? what? <laughs> you I'm can't like, put that on your face. You can put so blame on a lot of people, but not Yeah, UPS, UPS. didn't have anything to do with this guy ending up in a, a freaking wild or a firefight in the middle of Miami. It's like, that has nothing to do with them. Legit. But people are so quick to just get upset with corporations. It's like, they're upset with Peloton over at the commercial where the guy gives his wife the Peloton. I saw and that. <laughs> yeah. Your friend posted about that. I, I hadn't seen the commercial. Oh, so yeah, I was no, like, I was like, people are super upset that how dare a husband get his wife. How dare he uh, get her exercise yeah, equipment. Yeah, yeah. Is, kind of like, she looked good already. Yeah. <laughs> That's so ridiculous. It was, was a was woman like, being upset? Like, was the was no, another so the woman upset? Society's upset. Society's upset. Society, you can't society force a woman, a woman to exercise. Or a mix. Well, I mean, like are both both genders? I, don't, I mean, there's I a mean, lot of everyone's genders. upset. You know? All genders, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah a lot of people are upset because it, you know, it's unimaginable that someone likes to exercise and would like yeah. us. Oh my god! Like a spin class at home. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Okay. Should just that be crazy a, world. Yeah, shut up. We have to wrap this up, bro. <laughs> All right, keep going. Talk more. <laughs> okay, this was episode five. Thank you guys for tuning in. If you like this episode, if you like our podcast, please write us a review and give us five stars because that's what we deserve. <laughs> um, and uh, make sure to tune in for every single week for indefinitely for every Thursday. Every Thursday, new episodes. Um, and if you're ever in Miami, make sure to check out Dr. Charles Mall Regener no Gen Life Regenerative Medicine. If you guys are looking for PRP, prolotherapy, or stem cell treatments, this guy's the best in the game. Hidden and I have been clients of his for about two years now, and we have so many good things to say about him. He really, truly is an expert in his field, and he's the best, and, and an amazing practitioner and professional. So check him out, Dr. Charles Mall. Thank you so much, and I'll catch you guys next time. Next time. Next time. Bye. <laughs>